I would say climbing is the, well, short of motherhood, climbing is probably the most important thing that happened to me in my life in terms of the things I remember, the friends I made. Uh, I started climbing for the, for the people in it, really, and that's always been true. This is the American Alpine Club's Legacy Series, a tribute to the visionary climbers who made the sport what it is today, and a commitment to securing their legacies. In this episode, we're doing things a little bit differently, exploring the subject of another episode in the series from a different perspective. In one of this year's video episodes, we heard from climber and scientist Arlene Bloom about the 1978 expedition to Annapurna the first American attempt of the peak. It's an incredible story of triumph and tragedy, but it's not only Arlene's story to tell. So in this episode, we'll be talking to another important member of that fateful expedition and historic climber in her own right, Irene Beardsley. And I'll be your host, filmmaker and podcaster, Jim Aikman. I'm Irene Beardsley, and I'm 80 years old. We spoke to Irene at her home outside San Francisco. The interview was conducted by past AAC president and Legacy Series co-founder Jim McCarthy, as well as his wife Ellen Lapham, and recorded by myself. When Nick Clinch found out that we were going, he said, are you crazy? <laughs> he said, you know, that's really dangerous, and we knew it was dangerous, but we didn't know how dangerous it was. So that, that was an issue uh, through the entire climb. Was, was it didn't make any sense to continue. Irene and her fellow women in climbing at the time, the 1970s, were pretty used to being told by men that something was hard or crazy or just too dangerous. By 1978, she'd been on multiple expeditions where she was relegated to the quote-unquote wives' camp or not allowed to travel above a certain point. But the Annapurna expedition marked an important turn in the history of climbing, and not just for Irene. A climbing expedition of, by, and for women where they were calling the shots and feeding off their own intrinsic drives. But it wasn't always like that. Irene was born in a military family that moved around every couple years, living on both coasts before settling in Washington, D.C., where she went to high school. But she made her way back west for college, where she still lives. When I uh, got to Stanford, I cast around for a social group as one does, and, and we were encouraged in, in the freshman dorm to go out for various activities, and nothing was fitting. And then I saw an ad in the daily for the Stanford Alpine Club and uh, climbed in the valley fairly often. I couldn't go every weekend. I was studying physics, right? <laughs> I had homework. <laughs> so it's not like I completely, uh, but it's, those, it's the climbing I remember better than a lot of the other parts of college because it turned out that the Alpine Club was where I would make my friends. They were the people I needed to hang out with. And Nick Clinch was the president of the Alpine Club at the Stanford Alpine Club at that time. And, uh, I went up to him afterwards and I said, gee, Nick, <laughs> I'd like to go on this trip, but I don't have a sleeping bag. <laughs> so he loaned me his new sleeping bag and that was how it all got started. 
and then I climbed Cathedral Peak uh, by two different routes with Nick that, that first weekend, and I came home just in love with climbing and unable to walk downstairs <laughs> from the un unusual exercise. So that's really how I started. One of the most important areas for Irene's climbing was the Tetons, the steep cluster of gneiss and other metamorphosed igneous rock that bursts out of northwestern Wyoming, just south of Yellowstone National Park. My mother and my two brothers and I drove west uh, the summer between my junior and senior years, and we drove past the Tetons. And I looked up there and I thought to myself, I know people climb those mountains. <laughs> But, you know, that we just drove through the Tetons and on to Yellowstone, so, so the, the idea was there. In 1965, Irene and Sue Swedland made the first all-female ascent of the north face of the Grand Teton, an iconic route on difficult alpine terrain. She also made an early ascent of Mount Moran, the most technical mountain in the range. But there is another route in the Tetons that Irene is particularly known for. I can certainly see why people love that climb and go back to it and go back to it. Irene's arete on Disappointment Peak is a striking feature that cannot be missed or mistaken on approach. The climbing is unique, following an arete that is split on either side by cracks that make it technical but well-featured. And despite the range's reputation for crumbly rock, Irene's arete is adventurous but solid and tops out on a knife-edge ridge that juts out into the air beneath the Grand. I undoubtedly have entirely too much uh, fame for doing Irene's Arette because I, I was just lucky I was in the right place at the right time. So pretty incredibly scary for me. I'd never climb anything that vertical. Uh, and, and when it's a ridge, it's, it's sort of twice as scary as climbing a vertical face because it drops off on both sides. And, and we had a big thunderstorm right at the top. And we had to take shelter under a big rock. And it was quite a storm. And then we didn't go to the top because of that storm. We rappelled down to, on the right-hand side. And so, so anyway, then the next day, some of his friends were coming up to climb the Grand. And so he had me lead the exit bridge without the whole way. So, <laughs> and that worked out. From the Tetons, Irene took her climbing beyond the four corners of the United States. With plenty of technical training grounds and various meccas of hard rock climbing, the lower 48 don't hold the highest peaks, and Irene felt the pull of thin air. My first husband, Lee Ordenberger, was uh, enamored of climbing in Peru. He went there many, many times, and I went with him uh, twice uh, in 58 and 64, but then after that, I. Had, even in 64, I had small children, and I just decided I couldn't do that again. But if I could have, I would have kept going to Peru because it's a wonderful place to climb the Cordillera Blanca. And uh, snow seems to, uh, this is subjective, it didn't seem to avalanche as much as other as the Himalayas. And uh, the weather was good. It's winter, but it's so close to the equator. It's the dry season. and, and uh, So I really loved it down there. and I found I did well at altitude. My strong point in climbing is just persistence. It's not ability. <laughs> and persistence is what you need in a place like that. 
I went to the Cordillera Blanca for two seasons, and the second one I only stayed uh, for half the time, for one month, because I had left my first daughter, Carolyn, with a babysitter. And I got back and I, I felt terrible. How could I have done that? She was fine, <laughs> but, but I was beating myself up for, uh, for leaving her. I, I came back and she was really small, but she was talking and she stood up in the crib and said, you came back, mommy. <laughs> so then after that, I just didn't go away for long periods of, until, uh, until the Annapurna expedition, which was quite a bit later. From Peru, Irene wanted to take her climbing to even greater heights. And we all know what that means, the Himalayas. But her first foray left a little to be desired. Well, the reason I wanted to go high was because of the two trips I made to Peru where I found that I did have some ability for high altitude and I really enjoyed it and uh, felt like I could go higher and felt like I could climb a high mountain. And then coming so close to getting to high altitude on the 61 trip with Hillary and then not being allowed to try it uh, made me think that I would never get the opportunity. Irene joined an expedition to Mount Everest in 1961 that was led by none other than Sir Edmund Hillary from New Zealand, the first ascensionist of Mount Everest. But really, her husband Lee was invited and Irene was simply allowed to tag along with the wives. In fact, once the expedition arrived at base camp, Irene was forbidden by Hillary to even set foot on the mountain, despite her impressive climbing resume. Climbing culture was still rooted in macho siege tactics. So Irene got little more than a taste of that rarefied air. She took it gracefully, but knew she wanted more. I just felt like I wanted the experience uh, to see how it worked, to see uh, how it would feel, you know. Irene's greatest climb was still ahead of her. And not long after Everest, she linked up with Arlene Bloom, a fellow academic and scientist at UC Berkeley. Listeners will recognize this name from the Legacy Series episode, Annapurna 78, which tells the tale from Bloom's perspective. The uh, Annapurna expedition was organized, I guess Arlene and um, Vera Watson and myself were the first uh, organizers of it. And we wound up taking 10 climbers, and then uh, mostly from around here, uh, Piro Kramar was, is, from the Northwest, and uh, Joan Fiery. She was the oldest member. And then the two really young ones, uh, Annie Whitehouse and Marty Rusmore, were here. She was like 20 or <laughs> 21, I guess. Marty was younger, I think Marty was 20. But the two of them had gone and climbed uh, uh, McKinley, as it was known then, Nolly, in high school. <laughs> so they were not inexperienced. They were young, but they were not inexperienced. With the team in place, Irene, Arlene, Vera, and the rest set out to raise the funds and tackle the logistical challenges of an expedition on this scale. The uphill mission had begun. When I decided to go to Annapurna, my two children had very opposite reactions. Uh, the youngest one uh, didn't, uh, she was pretty shy and she was also pretty worried. I could. That uh, didn't let on too much, but the older one just in high school just went telling everybody, "My mom's going to climb Annapurna," and that was kind of the way it was. It was <laughs> she had no doubts. 
Um, people like Nick Clinch thought we'd chosen the wrong mountain, but uh, we didn't. I didn't. I didn't get a lot of trouble. I mean, I, 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 having climbed mostly with men, I was really anxious to do something with women, and I was also anxious to have a chance to go high. At the, at the time, yes, it felt like uh, women weren't doing these kinds of trips too often, and it's something that that needed to be done. And we weren't trying to say we were the best high altitude women climbers in the United States or the world. We were just a bunch of people who wanted to go climb a mountain, and we felt that uh, we should be able to do that. It was hard to ask for money <laughs> on that basis. You know, we want to have fun. Why don't you give us some money to do it? Fundraising is not something I'm very comfortable with. But uh. The team came up with a novel idea to kickstart their fundraising. T-shirts with a somewhat unconventional slogan. The meeting where she presented various designs for the T-shirt and one that had the slogan, The Woman's Place is on top. And uh, we just all burst out laughing, so we had to do it. And it started a whole trend because uh, there's a T-shirt by one of the great uh, undersea divers, the woman's place is on the bottom, <laughs> and others. <laughs> so it, I think it, it had a, big, a lot to do with our success in selling the T-shirt. We even had men wear it. <laughs> Finally, the team arrived in Nepal to begin their approach to Annapurna. The entire expedition took about three months. And so uh, shortly after we arrived in Kathmandu and got organized, we set off to trek to Annapurna base camp. It's the base camp used by the French and on the first ascent. And to get there, you have to uh, go north out of Pokhara and then west a ways and north up gets to the Kaligandaki, and then there's a, you have to leave civilization, go over a very high uh, pass into the Annapur northern uh, area, uh, northern north of Annapurna. So I think that took 10 days. I think we had 70 porters. Uh, we had six Sherpas counting the uh, Sirdar. We had Sierra Designs uh, make our outer equipment, the uh, Gore-Tex outer suit and the down jacket and the down pants and the down vest. And those were warm and toasty, but probably a lot heavier than what, well, I, the outer garments are <laughs> like, seem like a chain, chain of mail of, wow, you know, armor <laughs> when you lift them. I can't imagine ever wearing them. I still have them. Rennie said, you ought to put those in a museum. <laughs> when I was asking, what should I get rid of? <laughs> Anyhow, so, but then we, each were responsible for our own boots. And I had a pair of boots that I had bought for uh, Peru, which I loved dearly, which carried me up like eight mountains down there and they made by Sporthouse Schuster. I still have them in the garage. And they were leather outers and felt inners. And they were so comfortable. Of course, I don't think my feet have grown. I don't think I could wear them anymore, but, uh, and so I took those to Annapurna and they still worked very well. I didn't get, I didn't get frostbite, let's put it that way. <laughs> we got to base camp and that, that was quite wonderful and we uh, were setting up and getting organized and we, we couldn't actually go sleep up on the mountain until the Sherpas had had their ceremony blessing the climb and we had to wait for the 
scars come by mail rudder from Kathmandu, and it was kind of complicated. So we set about uh, doing the other things, and we sent up a reconnaissance party. And I guess actually we were allowed to establish Camp One. Uh, the way to Camp One was uh, along the edge of a glacier on on rock, and then up a little ways into a little rocky bowl, and then. People went up uh, from there and found the location of the Dutch camp too. And then everybody came down and we had the ceremony. We really had a great time on that trip. It was like the adults weren't there, you know. <laughs> we were in charge, it was fun. Everybody let their hair down pretty much. I had never seen avalanches like that and we basically saw or heard one just about every day we were on the mountain. But there was this one in particular, Arlene and I were standing outside the tent at Camp 2, and all of a sudden, way up at the rim of the bowl, the big bowl that includes Annapurna, uh, North Face, this huge avalanche broke loose, and it wasn't coming at us, but it swept down and it swept over the flat glacier that's just above Camp 1, and the film crew was out with our base camp manager doing photography and they were out in the middle of this flat glacier and it just, it just swept over them and you couldn't see anything for about five minutes. And then it cleared and you could see them all picking themselves up. So th then there was a big, uh, we, we started off and I was, everybody had sort of their favorite climbing partner and I was climbing with Vera Kay uh, from Czechoslovakia. And I had gotten to know Vera on a previous trip uh, to the Brooks Range that she had invited me on. She showed up in our house and one, one time and said, you know, invited me to go to Alaska, which was pretty cool. And, and I really liked Vera, and so I had, was impressed with her strength and her ambition and uh, suggested that she come on the trip. And sure enough, she was incredibly strong. So I was climbing with her and other people were matched up. And then there was this uh, decision when we started climbing the Dutch rib that we should put the best ice climbers out in front. So uh, I think Vera Kay got on it because she was the toughest, <laughs> most likely to get to the top. And I think I got on it because I was a real American <laughs> since we're calling ourselves an American expedition. And, and uh, summit day, um, we had slept on oxygen over the night and we started getting ready. Uh, we had 2,400 feet to go to the summit, which is really, Pretty far that day. We hadn't used oxygen hiking yet, walking. So we were, we got ready, and that always takes it much longer than you think it's going to, and everything is slow. And so we set off, and, and uh, there was no technical difficulty in front of us. We didn't know that. We all throughout the expedition, we'd been looking at the summit of Annapurna and seeing these rocks, and thinking, "Oh my God, you know, it's going to be ice on rocks. It's going to be really hard." But there, it turned out that we just walked over that. There was nothing there. But uh, it, the snow consistency was such that every other foot you sank in, it was breakable crust. Oh, it was breakable, breakable crust all the way. Like, and not, not really deep, but, but so that it was pretty exhausting. It was just one of those things where you know, the number of breaths per step is sort of obscene, and you don't know if you're ever gonna make it, but we had perfect, wonderful, weather, very clear, not windy where we were, and we had a full moon, and so we were pretty determined that we, that we would 
do it if we could. And when we had uh, slowed down to the point where it was beginning to look ridiculous, we, we started using oxygen. And then it made a big difference. St still taking a lot of breaths per step, but only about half as many. We used ropes all the way from, I would say, all the way from Camp 3 up to Camp 5, all the time. And uh, so we were roped when we uh, came to this last pitch, just below Camp 5. First you had to pass over these uh, rock bands, but they, they were pretty laid back and they had snow on them, but grandpa's bit in and you could just walk right up them. And then there was a row of successive little mini, mini peaks of snow and we had to go over a few to get to the last one. And it was the kind of place where you don't stand. It was sharp enough and it, you could get yourself up and look over the ridge, you know, but you did not want to stand on top. <laughs> I think we got to the top round three. We didn't really worry so much about, about a turnaround time because we figured we'd be able to walk down in the moonlight if we needed to. But I have to say it went extremely slowly and there was a rocky ridge off to the left and it went for quite a ways parallel to us. And I, every now and then I would look over and see that I hadn't made much progress. Yeah, very, very hard. Uh, and of course, joy at the summit and, and uh, photographs, Spirit took photographs. We were the first American women and the, the first women and the first Americans, period, because no men from America had climbed Annapurna up till now. You could say we bit off a big uh, chunk. We, we walked down and it did get it did get dark and we were walking in the moonlight and kind of half asleep and you get down to the tent and there was a little steep three foot wall right above the tent and I fell off of it. <laughs> the original idea was to have a first summit team and then if everything permitted to have a second summit team. After we made the summit, uh, everybody was happy and some of us wanted to go home and uh, which I guess frequently happens. We didn't think that we had uh, enough strength for a second summit team. One of the reasons was uh, none of the Sherpas wanted to go. The two summit Sherpas were quite tired and uh, there wasn't any other Sherpa that was really fit and anxious to go. Various people had taken themselves out of the running for the summit one way or another. Uh, Marie had frostbite, uh, Arlene had never wanted the summit for herself. She just wanted to, expedition to succeed. So anyway, uh, Vera Watson and, and Allison Chadwick uh, had gotten to know each other really well and had climbed together. And, and uh, Allison really wanted she, to go to the summit. And I think she was probably unhappy that she was not on the first team. We, I guess, felt we couldn't say no. All the stuff was in place. So I guess it just came down to that. They had worked as hard as anybody else, and, and Allison deserved her shot at the summit. And we had reservations about Vera being up for it, but uh, there was no technical difficulty above Camp 5. So uh, we were, I guess, a, a day later than expected coming down off the mountain. We were meant to go all the way from from five to three, 
in one day, but I think I was in particular very tired and going moving slowly. And so we wound up uh, sharing uh, Camp 4 with the Second Summit team. At this time, obviously, all the decisions had been made. And so we saw them off, and then uh, they, they were uh, on their way to Camp 5 the next day, and they weren't seen after dinner. They were just below Camp 5, and, and we, so they had fallen on the last approach to Camp 5, which was very steep. We just think that up this very la uh, this last icy steep pitch, I think we just think that one of them slipped and pulled the other off. After the second team was lost, <clears throat> that was just two days after our summit, and so the emotions went on this wild roller coaster from, you know, the success and, and being finished with the mountain, so to speak, for us, the first team, and then to have this happen, and, and the fact that most of us had not really wanted them to try sort of added to the unhappiness and the just terrible feelings of uh, what could we have done differently. So there was really no time, almost no time, to enjoy the summit. And it was a tough trip to come back from, too. And I would say that most of us were up to a year and sort of sorting it all out. After the expedition, the team members went their separate ways for a while, trying to piece their lives back together. But parts of them would always stay behind on that 8,000-meter mountain in western Nepal, and a sense of pride for what they accomplished has also grown as the years went by. As the years go by, I have a sense of disbelief. <laughs> did, we ever, did we actually do that? Did those but on the other hand, I didn't want to make—I didn't want to make too much of it. I didn't want—you know—I didn't want to go around saying, "Look at me, I climbed Annapurna," so I've always been. But at the same time, as the the year or two years actually, I was—I always say it took me a year to get ready for the trip, and two years to get over it, and that was—it uh, was just—it's like uh, battle fatigue, you know, uh, post-traumatic stress. I think because couldn't stop thinking about it for the longest time. Uh, so it's actually, it was kind of hard to get me to t talk about it in general. I just didn't want to. Uh, Nick, Nick, I went on a trip to Pinnacles with Nick and we talked about what it's like to, to have done something that was really beyond your capabilities, but you did it anyway, because he has he felt the same way about his climb. Has to do with, uh, you know, just doing something that was harder than you're supposed to be able to do. and. Uh, he had some wise words. He said, uh, you know, nobody can ever take the experience away from you, and you just put it in your pocket and keep it there. That was his phrase. Bring it out and look at it occasionally and put it back in your pocket. And that's kind of worked for me. I'd like to thank Irene for letting us join her at her home and hear these incredible stories from her climbing career. I know for me, it was a treat to hear about her early days and to get her stories from their Annapurna experience. If you want to hear and see more, head over to the American Alpine Club's Legacy Series website and YouTube channel. 
to check out Annapurna 78, a short film that features film footage, archival photos, interviews, and animation to take us back to the climb. Thanks for joining us on another episode of the Legacy Series. And stay tuned for more podcasts and film content from the American Alpine Club. This interview was conducted by Legacy Series co-founder Jim McCarthy and Ellen Lapham, and recorded by me, Jim Aikman. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.